This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Guys, ready for some hot weeds action? Hot weed action. Hello, welcome to The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Our what? Our podcast? Podcast. Oh, it's a Northern Cities vowel shift. It's a podcast policy network. I don't know, I don't know how, how that happened to me. Um, it is a policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by Sarah Cliff, Ezra Klein. We're going back to traditional weeds three act structure today. Um, Ooh, wow. gonna, people have been clamoring for the. We're going to talk structure. about. We're going to talk about the Trump today, Foundation. Oh, weeds and We're going to talk acts. about not just a research paper, but a National Bureau of Economic Research classic weeds research paper. Uh, my uncle Paul asked me over the weekend how we dealt last week with the fact that NBER released their papers a, a day late. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Well, the answer is we didn't use an <laughs> NBER paper. Michael Paul's an economist. That's scandalous. So he, he pays close attention to Does he matters. listen to the weeds? He apparently doesn't because he, he didn't know how we dealt with, with this delay. Uh, maybe so, he was just a little bit behind. You sure. know, there was a family wedding. Um, but first, we want to talk about really the ultimate weeds topic, the census's annual survey of income, poverty, and health insurance. Is it getting hot in here or is it just me? <laughs> God. <laughs> so this is a big report. Uh, it, it comes out once a year. Usually it is not that interesting. Last year when this report came out, what we said about it was that not all that much had changed. Oh, a bunch of people got health insurance. That's true. The economic the, side of the report yes, was not that interesting okay. last year. You're right that the, the continuing drop in health insurance was interesting. Although that wasn't new. That's why I was not. As, uh, right. I liked it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sarah. Wait, I way to sideline the health I insurance. fully apologize. Thank I you. apologize unreservedly. <laughs> But this census report has been greeted with quite a lot of, of shock and surprise. And the big reason is it pretty much not just is everything in it going in the right direction for almost every subgroup they could pull out. But the big thing that has changed, which has not been changing in any significant way for a long time, is median household income. So median household income in 2015, this data comes out a little bit late, uh, was 56500 That's up 5.2% from the previous year. And that is the largest single-year increase since the census began keeping this kind of data in 1967. There was a sharp drop in the share of Americans living in poverty. That's true not just on the garbage official poverty measure, but on the non-garbage supplementary poverty measure. There is a sharp increase on the number of Americans with health insurance. And when you decompose the data into subgroups, it actually looks even better. You have faster wage growth happening at the bottom half of the income distribution than you have at the top. So the economy we've seen in recent years where you do have growth, but it's concentrating among the top 1%, that is not happening now. You're actually finally seeing uh, significant gains for the bottom 10%, for the 40th to 50th percentile. That, that's a really big deal. There's a lot more in the report, but I'll stop here because our own Matthew Iglesias thinks this report might be garbage. The census income report <laughs> has a lot of problems. To be frank, um, it's a great, you know, so so there's three different things in it. And it has this good, boring name where it's a report on income, poverty and insurance status. Um, it's, I think, one of the better measurements of insurance status that the government produces, mm -hmm. um, except yeah. it's a survey based measure. Um, and so like Gallup, which is really, really specializes in surveys, they report this 
similar data more frequently. Yeah, it's um, a little confusing because the census does it. Um, there's an, there's another report from the National Center on Health Statistics that came right. out last week, and we have Gallup. So they're all like hovering well, this around is the, the so same it, amount. It comes out of the Census Bureau, and that sounds like really, really official, but it is essentially a poll. Right. Um, so yes. on the insurance question, which it's is a very big poll. Yeah, right. Yeah, but the, the insurance question is conducted well, at great expense. Well, answer, well, no, no, no. The whole I'm saying this specific survey. Right. So so the insurance question is well answered by pollster methods. Right. But the result of that is you don't actually need census to do it because Gallup does it, which is convenient. The census is good because it goes back a long ways. And, and this is good data. And it's it's important for like healthcare people to, to keep track of it. Um, the poverty metric has these well-known problems that I believe we've discussed on, on other shows. I think you should hit um, them again, though, but, now that we're in. Well, here's what I want to say. The median income number has the exact same problems as the poverty number, right? Which is that the census's definition of income is a bit of an odd duck, right? So Congressional Budget Office produces what it calls a uh, a market income number, right? Which is like, how much money did people earn from working and or from just being rich guys who own stuff? Um, so that's often interesting because we often want to know, like, what is the, like, underlying plumbing of the economy? And then, like, what does the government do in, in taxes and transfers? Um, census does not give us that market income concept. They count in the impact of government programs, but they only count the impact of government programs if what the government does is give you cash, right? So, like, if the government gives you a free car, that does not count as income. But if the government gives you a nickel, that does boost your income. <laughs> or if the government gives would you a have... health insurance plan, as they have been doing for 20 right. million people exactly. recently. And, and not well, just that, they give you money to buy, effectively, a health insurance plan. But also plan, employers, but right? Yes. So yeah. if your employer dropped your health insurance plan and gave you all a dollar raise, like people would <laughs> rightly say that they had just gotten screwed. But the census would say incomes had gone up. Now, conveniently, they do also ask people if they have health insurance. Um, but insurance is not just a binary. Uh, so to an extent, right, when you have a shift into insurance like, is not just a binary. Right. So, Hashtag weeds. So <laughs> if, to the to the extent that, you know, murky forces in the world of health insurance push you to higher deductible plans, but then you get more income in cash, that registers as an income gain. Um, if it goes the other way, that registers as an income fall. Now, those things may be good or bad kinds of trends, but it, it's a little bit of a confused confusing picture of what's going on with people's well-being. The other thing, which is not a methodological flaw in the survey, but is crucial for people to keep in mind, is that um, something Donald Trump has said a lot on the campaign trail based on old census surveys is American people haven't had a raise in almost 20 years. Um, Hillary Clinton back in February when she was more of a populist uh, also used to say this. Um, it is still true according to the 2015 survey. Um, can we just say what the underlying data point is here? So that is to say that median household income reached a peak in 1999. It then fell in the sort of small early aughts recession. It did not recover all the way in 2000, by 2007. Then it fell again and it's recovered again. And this is all adjusting for inflation. Exactly. Yeah. Adjusting for inflation. So there's two things about this. 
One is that the inflation adjustment it uses is the, the what's called the unchained consumer price index, um, which I don't think anyone thinks is the correct measure of inflation. A lot of people are politically committed to it because people want to use changing the inflation index as a stealthy way of cutting Social Security benefits. And like sensible people have stronger feelings about Social Security than they do about Inflation metrics. Just, you've heard this if you've heard of this debate. What you've heard it called is chained CPI. Exactly. Exactly. That's what that is. So chained CPI. This is enters, one of our most weedsy. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's, We're going in the weeds. So ch- chained CPI enters politics as a proposal to cut Social Security. People and I agree with them. To be clear, don't want to cut Social Security, so they sort of make up technical reasons to say that chained CPI is wrong. Hold on, I'm just going to back yeah. because I do. I I just want to. Go at a little bit higher okay. altitude for a minute. There are different inflation measures. Yes. Uh, chained CPI is one of them. It is broadly considered by virtually everyone, every economist I've spoken to on it. There might be some heterodox views on this, but it's broadly considered to be more accurate. Uh, it does a better job substituting, accounting for the way people substitute for goods around price changes. That's basically the difference. Yes. The way it is being used in Social Security is to come in – you could change to a more accurate inflation measure in Social Security and then simply update the payment so there was no cut. Right. You could reinvest the money in other things. The reason chain CPI is important in politics is people want to apply to Social Security and then take the savings from a lower cost of living adjustment and put it back in the deficit reduction or tax cuts or whatever they want to do with it. Exactly. That has created an opposition using chain CPI. piece of collateral damage of that opposition is that the rest of the government is using a less accurate inflation measure in places where it would not be used to make cuts, but would be used to get a more accurate picture of the economy, exactly. like the census report. Right. So government statistical agencies, <laughs> as a secondary consequence of Social Security <laughs> politics, are using this bad inflation measure. Normally, it doesn't matter that much, but we happen to be actually really close to reobtaining the 1999 peak. So if we use chain CPI, you would say 2015, Americans were richer than they've ever been. If you use unchained CPI, you say that Americans haven't gotten a raise in almost 20 years. And as a matter of political rhetoric, there's like a huge difference between like we've been getting screwed for two decades (laughs) and we're richer than we've ever been, right? And this all hinges on this incredibly boring thing about the composition of consumption baskets. But then the other other thing about this, it's not a measure of wages at all, right? It's a measure of household income. So in 1999, compared to today, we had many fewer retired people, and we also had fewer people in their early 20s, right? So people who are retired today were like old middle-aged people, and these like young millennials in the office being overly sensitive about things were like small children <laughs> who did not have households that were that were in the income. So this switch, right, we've taken a bulk of high-earning baby boomers, and they're just like not working, not because they're unemployed, but because they're old. And then we've taken a bunch of people who used to be small children, and now they have like shitty entry-level jobs. And that's fine. That's just like, that's the circle of life. And over the next 10 years, those millennials are going to get older. They're going to learn what the fuck they're doing. They're going to get higher wages. That's just a demographic fact, right? But it's dragging us down. So I think in any like real sense, the picture of the economy we get here should be rosier. But then over and above all this... 
Um, polling people is a stupid way to assess their income because the government maintains detailed legally binding records on the incomes of every American at the Internal Revenue Service, right? Uh, this is like we've had a couple things about exciting new research based on administrative data, often <laughs> Swedish administrative data. Controversial because, Swedish administrative because data. Because the Swedish government lets its statistical agencies work with administrative data. Um, the American government usually doesn't. But like whenever we've gotten a peek at it. Like this is Thomas Piketty's whole breakthrough was he used IRS data and he showed that the level of inequality was way bigger than the census data showed. There was a poverty paper that we did a weeds episode on where it showed that like way more people got housing vouchers than told pollsters they were getting housing vouchers. And it's like it's really the stupidest problem in the world, right? The, the way they uncovered this mystery was they went to HUD and they asked them, how many people are you giving housing vouchers to? And it was double the number of people that turned out in the survey, right? All surveys, we know, like, polls have flaws, but sometimes a poll is the best way to do things. But this is, like, after the voting in 2012 was done. (laughs) Instead of just looking at who won, going back and asking them. Um, And infamously, that gets you the wrong result, right? Like, lots of people who didn't vote say they voted. The people who pretend to have voted usually say they voted for the winner. Um, So, you know, it's good... Like a good census income report is better than a bad one. The best one on record is almost certainly good news. But it's really not like a good way to measure the American economy. Yeah, so it feels like two things are true here. One, I think there are a lot of like very compelling arguments that this is not the best way to do these measurements. Two, the economy is improving. That it's, it, booming. It, it's booming. It's it, that you can hold in your head both of these thoughts that this shows good news about the economy, even if the data is not as robust as we'd like. Do we know why we don't use administrative data for these sort of things? Is it's, there like a it, policy decision somewhere that was made yeah, in the yeah, yeah, of government? Like, yeah, the there's, a, there's, there's privacy laws from, I think, from the 60s that mm-hmm. prevent it. Um, and then there's like workarounds where like selected researchers can get access to anonymized data. But because politicians are tragically interested in more exciting things than that. No one has like created like a little program to create publicly accessible anonymized tax data. So that riff on the problems of the census report is legitimately one of my favorite things that has ever happened on the show. And I'd particularly like the part where you talk about demographic change to be animated into one of those chalkboard videos. But I want to Pull us out. <laughs> sure. Out of the weeds. <laughs> Happy days are here again. Well, I don't I don't exactly mean that I, I I think there are a couple big picture questions here because because one thing about a bunch of the questions you raise is it can actually go in either direction yes right it could mean things are better than we think and I think it's one reason you want to look at a lot of corollary data here yes a, a, a question I would like to pose to this group is at this point what would it take for us to say that the economy is actually doing well Because there is such a powerful – and I feel it too as a reporter who came of age covering the economy, um, you know, really in the the financial crisis, right? I didn't cover the economy that much before it. I have a very strong negativity bias. I have a very strong negativity bias in in economic news. But at this point, consumer sentiment is super high uh, or at least it's the highest it's been in a very long time. We have unemployment under 5%. And it's worth noting that when Mitt Romney ran for president, he said that he promised after his first term he would get unemployment under 6%. And like that was a big promise. So we are doing better than the previous presidential candidate 
the losing presidential candidate promised he would do during a campaign, which is when you make promises you potentially can't keep. The number of uninsured people is really quite far down. Wages are going up and appear to be going up for almost all subgroups. We know that we are seeing, you know, reasonable economic growth, particularly compared to peer countries, which is I actually in some ways think a pretty big deal. Now, you can go into this and, and look and find places to be negative. It doesn't mean we don't have poverty in this country. It doesn't mean people uh, are, are all making great wages. Male labor force participation is a big thing people talk about. But in some ways, I do think that is something where we and Matt, you and I have spoken about this, have kind of really fastened on the part that we're upset at, right? Like we've almost backed out a way to to be upset about these numbers. And yeah, I mean, we can have this debate over whether or not inflation-adjusted income is higher or lower than it was in, in 1999. It's worth saying that 1999 was the peak of a very large stock market bubble. And so it, it is a little bit weird, I think, to continuously treat that as real. The reason there was this big crash is partially because some of the things that were being counted in there were not actually sustainable. At what point can we actually just say, in a way we were willing to say in the 90s, the economy is doing well. It's not like the economy the 90s had no people with poverty. I don't know that we almost – like characterologically as an industry um, – and I'm not saying – maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe we still are not there. But I don't know at what point we – what it would take at this point to say, hey, it looks like things are going pretty well in the economy. What we need to do is keep this going, not – hey, there's a huge emergency powering crazy presidential candidates and we should think that everything is is in the toilet. I mean, some of it might relate to getting out of a presidential race, right? That like a lot of the rhetoric you mm -hmm. hear about the economy being, and, you know, it even serves Clinton some kind of purpose. If you're going to run, you want to like promise improvement. So I think a lot of it is wrapped up in That's being fair. in a campaign cycle. I think one of the things you mentioned that was interesting is kind of our obsession with certain factors like the male labor force participation rate, which we did a very long segment on here on the weeds and how much that seems to be like one of those things you hear about like again and again, you have big White House reports on it as a factor of this is a big problem for the United States. Um, I was reading a really interesting piece from um, Derek Thompson at The Atlantic who was writing on this topic saying like, well, why is this a thing we care about? If, if one of the interesting data points he was citing, if you look at, you know, you have a lot of men in the early 20s who aren't working and then you survey them. And some survey research shows they feel like pretty content with their lives and they are filling their extra time playing video games and like actually aren't like super sad about the work they are not oh, that's doing. Really interesting. And it's kind of it, it posed an interesting I'm not answering your question at all. I'm just adding in more interesting questions out of way. Then Matt will have to answer. <laughs> exactly. All of them. I'm just going to give these all to Matt. The interesting question that piece posed to me is if we have all these signs of an economy doing well, if we have growing wage growth. It's easier to stay home and play video games because you have this health insurance. People are relatively happy with it. And the economy is growing at, as this is happening. How worried or upset should we be about these economic indicators that you know we generally find worrying if you have all these other things going well? And this one factor you know, seems to be bad economically, but doesn't always feel bad to the people we're talking about. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel-y things 
things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because Naturebox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. The way in which our national conversation about the economy is tied up and driven by the same people who report on politics, I think has a lot to do with the way we experience it and, and with some of the negativity bias. So for one thing, I actually do think that there is a backing out of a bad economy from the existence of Donald Trump. I think there's a we've talked about this on the weeds. There's a very strong desire to see Donald Trump is driven by economic anxiety. I don't think the evidence at, that, at this point is very strong for that. But there, there is a view that something like Trump could only happen if things in this country were going really poorly. And the, the thing particularly that people want to believe other people think is going poorly is the economy because it's a very neutral thing. It's a very easy thing to talk about as opposed to demographic change, total loss of faith in the political system, other things that might be more difficult. But, but the other thing is that I, it is my sense from reading coverage that when you just read the pure financial press or you read pure business press, you do get a rosier view of things because you're trying to give people – ideas about how to invest in the market, not about how to think about American politics. And you do get a, a somewhat rosier view just because the incentives of coverage are different. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I, I think it is worth drawing a, a distinction, though, because is the economy good in the sense that the economy was good in 2005? And then this is the economy good in the sense that the economy was good in 1999. And then there's like, is the economy good in the sense that the economy was good throughout the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Sure. Right? Fair. So we are not in a 1999-like frenzy, right? And I think the, the indicators that that I think I would use to, to judge this, like common sense indicators you, you can see in your, your everyday life, is are there uh, women who, you know, you know or you hear about who have been out of the workforce for years raising children? Are they being like, pulled back into the labor market, you know, not like pushed by financial need, but like, are you hearing about like companies scrambling to find like qualified college graduates and realizing that there's this pool and people are like starting up programs to, to recruit them? And then a, a similar population like that is like, are ex-convicts finding it easy to get fast food jobs because you just like you can't pay a lot of money and run Wendy's business. You like have to take the workers who are available. Um, you don't want to hire the guy who's just been in jail for murdering people, um, typically, if you can avoid it. Um, so that's like the hot, hot labor market, right, is is, is what you would see. Um, then there's like the 
heavy thread in American politics still that like what is normal is the post-war decades and what is abnormal is what has now been the majority of like the past 40 years of time. And there's an interesting, you know, academic debate uh, underway that's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe we should step back from the arbitrary question of like what was the lifespan of people who are really old today? And like in the grand sweep of world history, it looks like the economic growth rate of the 70s, 80s, aughts, et cetera, was like pretty typical and that the 40s, 50s, and 60s were exceptional. Not just pretty typical. In the grand sweep of human history, it's fucking amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a high <laughs> level, but but, but the, the rate. The, the, no, I'm, I'm actually – we don't need to get – Okay. For a very long time, there was basically no economic growth at all in well, human history. Well, no per capita. You know. yes. Anyway, there's there's a lot of nuances to it. But, but anyway, the, the big picture is to say, you know, you may have to make the decision at some point to just say that like, well, we shouldn't compare things uh, to, to those post-war decades. Just like nobody goes around and says like, well, the world's a peaceful place because it's not 1943, right? Like that would be – People do make observations like actually the world is less violent than you think. But like it would be ridiculous to compare everything to the height of World War II. Um, and, and I think there's a viewpoint that like we should not compare everything to post-war reconstruction. I think on any of those metrics, you're seeing an economy that is clearly like OK, right? And I think the tie-in with politics is important. But I also think the particular partisan ideological configuration is important. There's a strong belief on the left flank of American politics that it does useful political work to emphasize the negative as a way of inspiring social change. So like when Bill Clinton was president in the late 90s and the economy was unquestionably good, um, there was a, a huge mania for uh, Juliet Shore's book, The Overworked American, uh, which had like the opposite thesis of the low labor force participation whiners that was like the labor market is booming so much. Everybody is working many hours and earning tons and tons of money. And so clearly we need to establish a European style welfare state so that people won't do that. Um, now we have the opposite phenomenon. Uh, people on the left still think we should have a European style welfare state. Um, so they have different economic indicators. And again, to be clear, I also think we should have a European style welfare state, but like that's it's for reasons of equity and justice and like nothing to do with the local economic fluctuations. Um, but that is the primary rhetorical mode of the left. The right's current primary rhetorical mode is that Barack Obama is president and that is bad, right? So when George W. Bush was president, you had everyone like and the economy was okay, but not fantastic. I think you had everyone aligned correctly, right? So like on the left, it was like gloom and doom. We need to like total reconstruction of American society down to like mainstream Democrats were just like carping for partisan reasons. And then conservatives were cheerleading, right? And uh, Mark Perry at the American Enterprise Institute, who is always a great source of economic cheerleading, he was like a really big deal in the mid-Bush years because Republicans like wanted to cheerlead about the economy. So they found a guy who is a conservative and who likes to cheerlead and who's really good at finding optimistic looking charts. And this was like everywhere. There was a book called The Bush Boom, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, now Obama's president. So that style of conservative politics is out of fashion. But I think liberals do not have the disposition. If you wrote a book like The Obama Boom by Ezra Klein, <laughs> the primary reaction by people on the left would be that like, 
you are a shill sellout who's trying to cover up the existence of acute social problems in America. Not that you were like doing awesome work and that by cheerleading for Democrats, we will get further expansions of the welfare state. Um, and, and I do think that that like heavily covers perceptions and that if for some reason Donald Trump becomes president and economic conditions remain similar, uh, we're going to hear a lot about the glorious well, I Trump think that economy. If you, I mean, just imagine that if Mitt Romney were president right yes. now, right? If Mitt Romney had come in in 2012, the conventional wisdom, correctly, I think, was that the economy was actually meh to bad. <laughs> I mean, it's, was, it's definitely better today than it was then. If Mitt Romney had gotten unemployment down to four point, whatever it is, 4.8%, roughly, something yeah. like that, uh, median wage had just had its best census report ever. <laughs> I mean, he would be Ronald Reagan, too. Oh, yeah. It would be unbelievable. But I think one thing Matt said that's important that I wanted to pick up on is just like this idea of a negativity bias. I think this is bigger than the economy. I think it's really true for a lot of things we see covered in the news. Um, One that I've covered a lot is around teen pregnancy, where if you survey people, most people, you ask them, do you think teen pregnancy is going up or down? Everyone says it's going up. Um, when actually it's at its lowest rate in 40 years. Like, it has been plummeting. It is undeniably good news. The same with abortion rates. You ask people, um, we did a survey where we asked people if th- they thought it was going up or down. Most people think it's going up. Again, it's going down. And I think it— Crime is down. Crime is down. Like, there's so many things that are getting better that we just—that maybe it's psychology. Maybe I think part of it's what we cover. Like, you— you don't see the absence of teen pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Like you see a teenager who's not pregnant and you just you don't think, oh, that must mean teen pregnancy is down. But then you see shows like Teen Mom or, you know, you hear more about teen mothers. And, and I think that plays into some of the kind of negativity bias that happens. I don't know if that's as true with the economy. I mean, I guess that maybe there is more news coverage of poverty, of like people in really – Difficult situations. And Ezra, you look like I'm nodding my head aggressively. Okay. Yes. yes. I not um, only think it's true the economy, I think it's truer with the economy. Yeah. So you, you take it from here. But I think there is this negativity bias that's much larger than the economy mm-hmm. that that is pervasive through how we think about what's happening in the country. Yeah. He, he, this is something I, I think is true about the media culturally to do like a little bit of anthropology on my own profession. It is a very uncomfortable position to be a reasonably well-compensated, educated, cosmopolitan, creative class worker wandering around saying things are great in the economy. It just makes you seem and feel, even if in aggregate measures things are going better or are even going quite well, there are out-of-work coal miners in West Virginia. And it is a much more comfortable place for people to be, for, for journalists to be, to be focusing on the people who aren't making it than to be saying, hey, speaking from my perch in Washington, D.C., everything's going pretty fine. You just get a lot of really, um, I think, to some degree, correctly angry reaction from that. I mean, this is also just a problem when you talk about aggregates in a very large economy. Like, even if we were in a place where everybody agreed the economy was doing great, right? Let's say unemployment was 4.2%. Labor force participation was 2.5 percentage points higher. Uh, median wages had gone up by more. And everything was really going unambiguously well compared to you know 1999. There would still be millions of people in this country, millions and millions of people who were living in extreme poverty and or who were living in real poverty and potentially in extreme poverty. So I, I do think that 
part of the negativity bias, it's not just political, it's also a little bit anthropological and, and, and cultural. People enter journalism, uh, particularly folks who write about some of these issues, because they're concerned about the poor. That's one of the reasons you might want to write about the economy. I mean, th- again, it's why I make a distinction with the financial press. If you If you go into writing about the stock market, you might just be very interested in the stock market, which is not a bad thing to be. But if you've gone into writing about the economy, and, and I'm someone like this, like I got into writing about the economy not so I could tell people things were great, but because I thought there were problems and I wanted to use journalism to try to uncover and, and shine light on and draw attention to some of those problems. But I do think that one knock-on effect of that is that it is just very hard to talk about economic progress in a way that, that, that feels authentic. I read um, a New York Times piece on the census report today or yesterday or whenever it came out. And it's by Benjamin Applebaum, who's a great reporter. He's a friend of mine. I worked with him at the Washington Post. I have tremendous respect for him. And and Binya's piece was, you know, about the ways in which a census report is pretty good. And it was a little bit about the ways in which, hey, but not so fast. Look at 99. But it had one human in the story because it's a New York Times report on this. You have to find like the guy in Milwaukee or whatever. And it was uh, – I think I, I might get this wrong, but I think it was a, someone who ran an exterminator business. Yeah, in Louisiana. In Louisiana. And he was thinking of shutting it down because he wasn't making that much money and just going on veterans and disability benefits. And if you're looking at this economic data, that is clearly not the main story it is telling, right? But I mean, it would just be weird to put in the middle of there an anecdote, uh, you know, a, a piece of reporting about someone living in the exurbs of Cleveland whose, you know, IT business is doing a little bit better than it was before. Like, it, it just – it's – that's not why anybody's in the game. <laughs> and so I do think that there is just this sort of narrative pull towards the parts of it that are not doing well. I actually think, by the way, in an aggregate way, that might be a good thing in terms of continuously shining light on some of the problems the country has to, to try to push uh, movement towards them. But I also think it it makes it just hard to get an accurate picture of what's going on sometimes. I, I think the negativity bias, though, is sometimes becomes more insidious than that. And I do find a tendency in journalism to portray all instances of change as bad, like in arbitrary ways. So there's been a spate of stories recently about how the housing market in suburban Connecticut is weak. And it really is, right? But this is not like shining a light on the unknown saga of like rural deep poverty, right? You're talking about the most affluent state in the nation, not like suffering an economic calamity, but like becoming a little bit less affluent. And the reason that the market for super high-end houses in suburban Connecticut is down is because the number of people employed in highly paid uh, financial services jobs is declining, which if the opposite was happening, right, if employment (laughs) in hedge funds and banks and compensation there was skyrocketing and houses in Stamford and Greenwich were spiraling through the roof, people would write that story as if it was a bad thing, right? You know what I mean? And and you get the same thing, right? We're like, we've all read a million stories about African-American neighborhoods in Milwaukee or Cleveland and the deep segregation and total social isolation. And we've also all read stories about the booming, gentrifying neighborhoods in Northeast Washington uh, or wherever in central Brooklyn and like the influx of newcomers and the displacement of old people, right? But like these are the same thing, right? Like you're – there's a there's a tendency 
I think a good tendency in journalism to try to seek out problems that are being neglected and shine a light on them because like even it's a big country and even when things are pretty good, there are still a lot of problems and we should pay attention to them. But that tendency sometimes ex- expresses itself in like doing the legwork to find a problem people didn't know about. But I think it oftentimes finds itself in just like taking a glass half full view of like whatever the fuck happens to be happening. Without, glass half empty view, you mean? <laughs> yes. Glass half empty. Um, without like trying to understand like alternatives or causes or like what's going on. Um, obviously, back when we all wanted to like take a bite out of hedge funds and like tax the rich and regulate them more, right? If you'd like stop and think about it, be like, well, okay, is it going to make you really, really sad <laughs> if one side effect of this is that flipping real estate in suburban Connecticut becomes slightly less lucrative? I think people would have said, you know what? It really is kind of a shame if realtors in suburban Connecticut who have done nothing wrong, like, take a hit as a result of this. But, like, that is a price that I am willing to pay, right? <laughs> you know, and, and it's – but, like, I don't know. We, we, like, we don't have that, right? It's just like, oh, my God, all trends are bad. Um, but if nothing was changing, that would also be bad. Can I just ask the complete opposite question from my argument for optimism or my questioning of optimism? You brought up a number of problems with the census report. Uh, If you had asked me perceptually, does it feel like 2015 saw the largest median income jump on record? I would have said no. So as a good Bayesian, recognizing this is survey data, should I be skeptical that this happened at all? I mean, I'm, I'm not skeptical that there was some income gain in 2015. That does accord with what I saw. Uh... I am a little there, – there's a part of me that wonders if this report, you know, is a little bit of an outlier somehow and I should be skeptical of it. And particularly – let me tack on Desert's question, particularly because the thing that stands out to me is like where the income gain is happening, that you're seeing kind of what seems to be a small shrinking of inequality. That is the thing that I look at and I'm like that does not accord with kind of what I feel like I see happening around me. Or like, So how do you think about – that as well. Well, I think the evidence that there's some shrinkage in inequality is is pretty good. I mean, we had a phase in of some significant tax increases on wealthy people and a strengthening of, you know, because the unemployment rate has gone down, right? Which means some people went from having like no labor market income to some labor market income, which is a very large, you know, percentage <laughs> increase. And it's notable, by the way, that in the guts of this report, the bulk of the median income gains came from that. Right. It didn't come from raises. It came from people who didn't have jobs getting jobs. Exactly. So if, if your picture of inequality is, look, inside the like corporate and franchise superstructure of McDonald's, there are like the guys on the top, the fat cats on the top and like the peons making the fries. It did not like narrow in, in that sense, right? What happened is, is that they hired more cooks. And so people went from like the bottom to somewhere. And there were also raises, right? So one reason this year was so good, I do think one takeaway we should get from this is that it's um it's very prestigious to adjust everything for inflation. And one thing that happened in 2015 was super duper duper low inflation. So like your shitty ass raise that you got actually counts as huge raise in inflation adjustment terms. I think there is a reason that no actual economic agreements that anyone reaches with another human being are specified in inflation adjustment terms, right? And that like actually 
those inflation adjustments are less like real to people than they feel like. Um, when people get a big raise from the boss, they like the extra money. They like the extra real spending power. They also like the affirmation that it provides, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, if the price of pasta diminishes by 5%, that does give you extra purchasing power. And people are happy about it, right? Particularly gasoline famously because people buy gasoline so frequently and the price isn't gigantic yeah it's a big number it changes on a day-to-day basis so it impacts consumer sentiment quite a lot right but there is still a difference between the good vibes you get from like noticing that your gas is cheaper and the good vibes you get from like having a positive performance review like a nice handshake a big raise or being poached by another Mm -hmm. company at at a much higher salary right Uh, because you know work is in part I don't. It's like a social enterprise, right? Um, and gasoline prices are the impersonal workings of a commodity market. So when you have a bunch of people who produce primary commodities, right? People in in oil patch states, people in farm states, actually doing worse uh, because commodity prices are low, and then a bunch of people getting met raises that count for a lot because commodity prices are low, and then a bunch of jobless people getting low wage jobs. That like all adds up to a big boost in inflation-adjusted median household incomes um, without necessarily making people who've been consistently employed the whole time feel like that much has changed. Well, I will add one thing that makes this report stronger is when you add in the health insurance element, right? Because that's not really being counted in the wages, as we discussed earlier, for reasons the report is somewhat garbage. But um, this is this other trend that's happening in parallel. So people are both gaining more jobs and gaining more health insurance that like we see all these reports coming out confirming that the uninsured rate is probably around like eight to nine percent right now. So like those two layered together, even though the census doesn't do that explicitly, like suggests to me like a reason to think this report is not just good because of the change in median outcome, but good because these many of these people, particularly because a few states expanded Medicaid last year, like there's this amazing map in the report that shows the effect of Medicaid expansion and all these people gaining in those states, that this is an even stronger report than it would be if you just take that like median income. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a super important point. And it is just worth saying this report is stronger than its headline numbers because of that, because of the distribution of things like that, right? Again, when the income gains are coming from people getting jobs, that's happening lower down in the economy. People who make six figure incomes were not highly unemployed beforehand either. I, I agree. I, I I really think that's the best answer in some ways to like my skepticism mm-hmm. that the details make it look like if anything, this report is probably understating some right. Of like if you these make changes. the adjustments that Matt's argument kind of suggests, yeah, totally. that it actually adds up to I think a stronger report. It also at this point, it's worth just celebrating for a minute. If you had told me, I don't know, when I started covering healthcare nine years ago, something like that, um, that we would be under that we'd be down to 9.1% uninsured. Was that the number, I think? 8.6, if you ask the National Center for Health Statistics. But Uh, yeah, we're like somewhere between eight and nine right now. That's a, I I think it would be called by Joe Biden a big fucking deal. I think it would. Maybe we'll have to discuss healthcare further. And well, it's... There's a lot of bitterness in that. No, it wasn't. It was just supposed to be. It's supposed to be a shout out to a nice upcoming show. We have. Oh yes, well, with that, I think we should turn the page. Oh man, that, uh, that's we've, a, we've really never talked. Cut. We've really never talked about health insurance <laughs> on this show. So yeah, stay tuned for some for some, some weed special healthcare coverage. Indeed. Coming. So Donald Trump has a charitable foundation, the 
Trump Foundation. Um, which, I'd say he is a foundation. Yeah, it's a foundation. It takes a charitable tax exemption. It does. Um, and has no. the name Trump. <laughs> it has the name Trump. It would be weird if that was the only thing he had that did not have the name Trump. I'm just saying, it doesn't, as I learned from Matt's piece, it doesn't seem to actually have much Trump dollar. Yeah. In it, but I'll so, let you. So, okay. That. So, this is of interest both because Donald Trump is running for president <laughs> and also because there's been a lot of like deep dive muckraking into uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton's charitable foundation. Um, really just one guy, David, David Farenthold, has done most of the muckraking on the Trump Foundation. And all credit to him not to take anything. He's at the Washington Post. At the Washington Post. It's been great reporting. It's been great reporting. Not, not to take anything away from him. But, like, he's just one guy <laughs> who has not been able to take advantage of, like, congressional subpoenas and FOIA and, like, all these advanced reporting tools, right? Like, what he has done is he's looked through the IRS filings that the Trump Foundation has done, and then he has basically phoned up the charities that say they have gotten money from Donald Trump. You can see he's tweeted some amazing pictures. All of this is happening like with a handwritten list of well, charities. Yeah, what he's doing is so it's it, so, it great. so great. It, it, it's, it's great. Like it's great. One but, man operation. But I mean, it just it sure. shows how how different the level of scrutiny yes. is. Right. The, the Trump Foundation is one dogged, smart, hardworking guy on it. The Clinton Foundation has like half of journalism and congress right and like the whole legal system um <laughs> it would be fascinating if we could get the level of disclosure from inside the trump foundation uh that we could from the clinton foundation but we we can't right so what what Farnhold has found is that trump stopped giving money to his foundation years ago um Donations to Trump's foundation, the majority of the dollars seem to take the form of basically fee-for-service cash compensation to Trump. So, like, Trump did a bunch of uh, WrestleMania specials, and he got $5 million from Vince McMahon. Um, but it's tax-free because it's a, it's a charity. He's also gotten donations from, like, a carpet company that he uses as a supplier uh, to a lot of his hotels. They've given him the largest number of donations, the McMahons, the largest dollar some. People magazine gave his foundation $150,000 in exchange for an exclusive look at photos of Barron Trump. Um, so it's a lot of stuff like that. Then the foundation giving, some of it goes to like a leukemia charity, um, the police athletic league, you know, sort of normal type stuff like that. But a lot of it, like a $100,000 check went to David Bossie's conservative group, Citizens United. A, a very unusually large check for the Trump Foundation. Yeah, exactly. They don't make... W one of the largest donations yeah. it made. At the time, David Bossi was suing uh, New York's Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, who was suing Donald Trump. Um, he has made donations or he has told the IRS that he has made donations to charities that say they didn't get the money. One Which of... If true, is illegal. <laughs> um, yeah, so so that's illegal. Um, he also used the charitable foundation to make a donation to Pam Bondi's reelection campaign, which is definitely illegal. Um, then they made a quote unquote clerical error uh, that covered that up, which maybe is illegal. Um, the reason he was giving money to Pam Bondi was that Pam Bondi was opening an investigation to Trump University. Uh, after she got the money, she shut it down. Uh, so that's the same as the Schneiderman thing, but with the shoe on the other foot. He gave money to the um, Palm Beach Police Association, uh, whatever their charity is, and they hold their annual gala in a hotel that Donald Trump owns. Uh, so the money just sort of flows back to him. The funniest thing is that 
he uses the foundation tax exempt money to buy stuff at charity auctions, um, which I don't know if the IRS has ever done a definitive ruling on. It does not sound to me like what charity is. What kind of stuff does he buy, Matt? So he bought (laughs) a portrait of himself for $20,000. To be fair, I believe Melania Trump bought the portrait. Um, Also, who else is going to buy that at this auction? Like, who is looking for that? No, no, no. Sorry. What was auctioned was it was a speed portraiture Ah, guy. I thought the portrait was like... So it's you pay the guy and he goes and does a portrait. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so that's that. fine. So a charity auction, to be clear, is a normal thing. Okay. My local public school does it. So like I bought like a gift card to Chipotle, right? <laughs> and the money goes- You didn't and, go for the speed portrait? And it's fine. Like it's, I wanted to help out the school, but I also like burritos. Uh, but I did not register that with the IRS <laughs> as a charitable contribution. It was just me buying stuff, right? So he also bought an autographed Tim Tebow helmet. Um, you know, and we don't have- Full insight, I think, into um, – because, you know, it's not a government agency. He is not serving in the government. There have not been congressional hearings on this. We don't really have that much transparency into whether there was anything like truly, genuinely, shockingly shady. We have the IRS disclosures. We know that the IRS disclosures are not correct or complete. Um, and we know that some of what is disclosed on there seems shady. But – Part of what you do when your disclosures are not correct and complete is it's the opportunity to be doing things that are more shady. Um, I don't know what happened to the money that he says went to charities that say they haven't gotten it. I don't have a way of finding out. Uh, Eric Schneiderman, perhaps in revenge for this, has now said he is going to launch a subsequent investigation into whether this has followed New York State's charities laws. Um, I have no idea what those laws are. I think given the level of political heat on the IRS commissioner, who um, House Republicans are poised to impeach him, it is unlikely that he is going to launch a serious crackdown on the Republican Party nominee's uh, charitable foundation. Um, But the whole thing is like a giant stinking mess that does not survive even a modest amount of scrutiny. So the only point I want to make on this is that there is the corruption and the illegality and the comedy. But also, if you pull back, there is what is something between amorality and immorality. What strikes me sharply when I look at what the Trump Foundation was doing, what it did, was just how uninterested Donald Trump was in helping people. Yes. How little, how poorly run the foundation was, how little effort was ever made to specialize in a series of concerns that it could get better at. Philanthropy is a hard thing to do well. We haven't done that much on philanthropy on the show, and I'd like to do more, but it is a hard thing to do well. People who give away a lot of money, you, you have to hire a staff, you have to vet charity. He didn't give away that much money. <laughs> enough. But it is really striking to me just how little he seems to have asked himself the question, um, given that he's routing, he is routing millions of dollars through this foundation yeah. ultimately. It could have done some good. But it is just this kind of scattershot. It's clearly a very social practice for him. He gives some money to people he likes, gives some money to people who are holding galas that he wants to go to, gives some money to people who have helped him out, you know, maybe gives some money to charities that his friends run or that, you know, touch somebody close to him. Barron's private school got a Trump foundation. The thing I think to know, this is a place where I do think you see a very sharp divergence from the Clinton Global Foundation. It doesn't take anything away from whatever conflicts of interest might have existed there. Uh, or however 
Bill Clinton, I think, particularly appears to have used the foundation as a way to just be in the game and continue having a lot of interesting meetings. And it saved millions of people's lives by negotiating, doing the hard work of negotiating lower prices on HIV AIDS drugs for Africa. It really did try to do good. And people are alive today because that foundation existed who wouldn't be if it hadn't. Bill Clinton, uh, again, whatever the problems of foundation, really did want to make people's lives better. He really like they had a big staff. A lot of those people were specials. It was a hard undertaking. Donald Trump did this like he does so many other things as a total dilettante who he picked it up at times, put it down at times, does not seem to have hired exceptionally good people, ran it in a very loose way. It, it just – I don't know. The the thing that I kind of can't get over with it, which is not really part of the reporting because this is not illegal to do and it isn't even shocking to do. Trump had an opportunity to help a lot of people and he didn't take that opportunity seriously. And I think that is characterologically revealing. Well, and it, it kind of lines up to like what we know about Trump as a businessman, where his interests seem to be quite scattershot, where you like both have like a real estate business, but you also have steaks and wine and books and like all these like different sort of things that I guess like all fall, fall under some sort of luxury umbrella, but seem like quite varied. I guess there is like a specialty in realty, but then all of this other stuff going around where like you said, like, you know, you don't get the same with philanthropy. Like you don't get great at selling steaks probably until like you really devote a lot of efforts to figuring yeah. out like who wants these steaks and like building a good steak business. And in that way, like almost it seems to fit into kind of how I think of Trump as someone who manages things with an interest in having a name on a lot of things and interest mm -hmm. in like a wide variety of things and less of like that specialization and like making one thing it, aside from America really great. It very much feels like Donald Trump's interest in having the Trump Foundation was to have a thing called the Trump yeah. Foundation. And then he used it for some stuff when it seemed convenient, but he's not interested in running a foundation. I've actually just in a, in a different context been talking to some people who run foundations lately because I'm becoming more interested in effective altruism and, and, and things of that nature. And it is really striking the seriousness with which they approach it. Like it, it is a hard thing to do when you do it. You have to hire really good staff. It is a undertaking. And he did not undertake it. I, I do want to say in mild defense of Trump that um, there's a lot that's really unusual about the Trump Foundation. Uh, the fact that the money was not well spent and that a lot of it just seems to have gone to things that like friends of his happen to have been on the board of. That's actually really typical, right? Like the people who are doing interesting, thoughtful work with their philanthropy, they are the rare ones, right? They're the... Yeah, but I don't take this as a defense. Uh, if they were running for president... <laughs> sure, I mean, I'm and saying... And this fit into this... I mean, like, I'm I would saying say it's, it's, not. it's not much of it. I'm just saying to, to understand the context, I think one issue that the Trump Foundation poses is that existing American law around private foundations is very slipshod, yeah, right? That sure. that I think that taking some of your money, giving it to a foundation that you and your children personally control, which then uses that money 
to make charitable disbursements to the church you attend, to the private school that your kids attend, to the colleges that you are hoping that they are going to get admitted to, um, that finances the construction of a playground across the street from your house. Right? That is a very typical rich Upper East Side New Yorker type thing to do. Probably give some money to your favorite museum. You know, some of that money is doing some good, right? Like I, this past weekend, took my kid to some fancy Upper East Side playgrounds that had little planks saying which Upper East Side bankers had had paid for their construction. Um, Museums, you know, offer services to to a wide range of people. But it is just not charity, right? Like in the ordinary language sense of like you are giving money away selflessly. Mm -hmm. These are people taking advantage of a tax loophole to engage in a certain kind of high-end consumption because, like, there are only so many cars that you are going to buy, and at a certain point, like, buying college admission for your children, to me, that's, like, a really egregious aspect of the overall American system. Trump, it was, like, not good enough for him to, like, just be able to take advantage of that. Like he also had to bribe state attorney generals and pursue odd personal vendettas. But it's not a good system. I think that's right. Speaking of not a good system, let's go to our white paper of the week. It's a doozy. I don't know about that. Okay. Um, I think that works. His tackle's one of the least pressing issues facing us. Um, no, I disagree. Okay, I well, let's, let's get into the bigger. research paper and then we can... Yes, it has a broader pro- implication. It has okay. broader implications. Right. More so, research is needed. Unsurprisingly, our research paper comes from the National Bureau of Economic Research. Um, they really need to sponsor this show. They, yeah, if they, if they ever... Well, they actually don't because we give them so much free advertising. I guess that's true. We so should stop doing this. We should stop doing that. Squeeze them. Squeeze them. <laughs> but um, they have a paper um, and it's called... Family dissent is a signal of managerial quality, evidence from mutual funds. And this is a really interesting paper where what they did here is they looked at different mutual fund managers. Um, They looked at folks who work at the company Morningstar, which kind of is an investment group. And what they found, they kind of looked at the returns they delivered. They looked at um, how these people grew up. It was pretty impressive data work where they used census data to kind of look at different Morningstar employees, um, kind of how much their, their parents earned. And the interesting finding from it is that they found that investment fund managers who grew up in poor families delivered better returns than investment fund managers who grew up in wealthier families. And what they think of the mechanism here, and I think this is the interesting part we should kind of focus on, is that folks who are from lower income backgrounds, they have a tougher time making it, that they find in this study they're less likely to be promoted. They get fewer promotions so the idea is those folks who, you know, do make it to this high level of managing these funds, they're really going to be at the top of their game, that they've had to work harder than people who come from more affluent backgrounds to get to this position and therefore are delivering these better returns. So I think, you know, this is like a narrow study of about like 255 investment fund managers, but it speaks to some bigger implications. And actually, one of the other pieces of research I've been writing about recently that this intersected with in a really surprising and interesting way is you actually see the same thing with female legislators in Congress, where you find that there are fewer women in Congress, but the women who are there, they tend to sponsor more bills, they tend to pass more legislation. And again, the idea is about the same mechanism, that it's harder to break in, so only the very the very top-level people are actually making it. Yeah, I think this is fascinating research. And I, I, I do think it has broad implications. The, the researchers say this at the 
bottom and potentially I am friendly to this because it accords to my intuitions. Mm-hmm. But what they are saying is that mediocrity is a privilege reserved for the rich. Mm-hmm. That if you come from the right background, you can be mediocre and still succeed. They don't really say this so clearly, but I think the implication is not that like when you think about the mechanism, I think what you're seeing here or what or what one might infer you're seeing here is that they are able to present in ways that feel successful to people, that they are good at talking to other investment managers, that they're good at winning the meeting. They have a lot of soft skills that are not necessarily related to outcomes, but are related to people's estimation of them and how much they just sort of fit the mental model of what a successful fund manager looks like. Meanwhile, people coming up often actually have to account or make up for a lack of those presentation skills with better results. It's weird to like look at mutual fund managers. I was joking before. This is like one of America's least pressing problems. Um, But mutual fund managers are an interesting occupation to look at because there's a very, very, very objective measurement of job performance. Right. Right. That's why this is a great. Right. Exactly. It's like your job is to produce high returns. Um, They are indexable. It's not just like vaguely he was good or he was bad. So you can get something really uh, solid on it. Uh, This is sort of this uh, overperformance of the disfavored group. I was taught in in school under the name uh, Jackie Robinson effect. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Because like the early African-American Major League Baseball players were all stars. And you think about that at first, you're like, wow, like these guys are really good at baseball. But then it's like, well, no, wait a minute, right? Like what's happening here is that they are setting a higher bar for like, will we hire an African-American player, right? And that's why there's overperformance. And now, decades later, there is no racial performance gap in baseball, right? Because it really is open to to people of all sorts of backgrounds. Um, But you're seeing with the mutual fund managers, right, that people are uh, presumably because they lack certain kinds of, of social graces or, or something else that's not. Or connections. Yeah. Or just like don't fit the mental model of like, oh, this is what an investment fund. Right. They don't, they don't fit in. They're, they're, bad, like. they're bad culture fits. So that it's only the really, really good ones uh, like manage to get promotions. Yeah, it's bad. And it is unlikely that this is a phenomenon localized to mutual fund right. management. And I think this probably has a lot of implications. And, and there is a lot of work and thought being done about implicit bias training in a lot of large corporations, particularly for hiring managers. It's something we think about in, in our in our hiring. But I do think that if you're trying to have a takeaway from this, it is that the one thing worth noting here empathically is that the people promoting the less effective but more privileged mutual fund managers almost certainly do not think that is what they are doing. Right. These are managers. The the mutual fund will live or die based on its performance. Morningstar in total in the people being tracked here. This really matters for the future of these companies. So they think they're making good promotion decisions and they aren't. And I think this should make you, if you're somebody who hires, second guess your ability to judge based on softer skills. Uh, I I have a lot of concerns about interviewing as a way we, uh, and you guys have heard this from me before, interviewing is a way we evaluate candidates because I am really not sure how much correlation there is between a good interview and a good, um, and, and good later performance at work. And I think this kind of research should only encourage that sort of underlying suspicion that People who are smart and who are well-meaning and whose incentives are well-aligned and who probably also think of themselves as folks who want to give folks from uh, less privileged backgrounds uh, a leg up 
are, are bad on a justice level, but are actually bad for their company. And they're not trying to. And so it's one thing to sort of point and laugh a little bit, but we are probably all doing the same thing. And I think it, one thing it speaks to for me is kind of the difference between hiring entry level and getting people in the door versus moving them up the ladder. Because I think there's a lot of programs that exist, like I know about them in journalism, that help get journalists of color or women in the door in an entry level position, which is great and like all well and fine, like gets a lot of people in the door. Even once you're there, like there aren't, you don't see as many like management programs that attempt to like increase diversity. You don't see as much of like what you see on the entry level of getting people started and in as in making sure that they're also moving up the chain of management or promotions or whatever kind of like looks like a more top job at a given industry that it's it seems like it's easier to succeed on your merits coming into the workforce versus going up into more senior positions where these soft skills end up seem to and like this study suggests they seem to end up playing a larger role like that's one of the findings here it's it's not that there's just fewer candidates from low-income backgrounds it's that the folks from the higher income backgrounds are getting the promotions at a higher rate, even though their performance doesn't necessarily suggest that they should be. I also think, you know, if you want to understand in politics, right, why you see a large block of primarily non-college educated white people who perceive themselves to be in a zero-sum competition with African-Americans and Hispanics, it's worth looking at this scanty literature on like pure class-based discrimination and considering that while it's not like cosmically true that there is a zero-sum competition between working-class white people and working-class African-Americans for social betterment, there probably is a zero-sum competition in terms of like how much diversity initiatives a CEO is going to in practice launch and care about in any given year or decade. And so that like things that increase the salience of we need measures in our company, in our society, in our university to make sure that we are not scanting African-American candidates for hiring and promotion probably do actually crowd out the idea that you should be thinking about the class background of your white or for that matter your african american recruits mm-hmm. right the the when you try to make uncomfortable adjustments you're going to want to make the most comfortable of the uncomfortable adjustments and that means to find middle class racial minority people if there's a big push to do you know diversity hiring not to take like the hardest of the hard cases from that edge and you know, you don't see a lot of research into this question. Um, I That's why this paper was interesting, uh, just like mm-hmm. pure sort of sort of class-based bias. And you don't see a lot of overt social concern about it, it seems to me. I'll just say that uh, a good book to read on this is J.D. Vance just came out with a book called Hillbilly Elegy. And it, it's a good book in a lot of ways. It's about sort of Appalachian whites in that culture and, and the ways in which it's distinct from other uh, – cultures and particularly white cultures in the U.S. But he's got a section at the end. I mean, this is a guy who grew up quite poor, ended up going, I think it was to Yale Law, then now works, I think, in Silicon Valley. But he has a big section on when he was graduating from law school, the ways in which he did not have a bunch of the skills needed to present to elite law firms needed for 
to sustain relationships with people from more privileged backgrounds. And, and it's interesting because I, I do think it's something that we we sort of know, but we often think of in non-class terms. And I think, as you say, Matt, there's probably there, there's probably some crowd out of just thinking about which kinds of implicit bias you're going to be correcting for at any given moment. Uh, and, you know, one reason folks could feel I did on on the interview show on my other show. Uh, interviewed Arlie Hochschild this week, who spent five years in Louisiana among sort of Tea Party Republicans. She talks about this deep story that they tell themselves that they feel that that feels true about America to them right now, which is that they've been waiting in line. And then now other people are, are, are cutting in line. And the point isn't so much whether that story is true or false, but why might it feel true? And one reason it might feel true, and she talks about this, is that there might be a, a cast of white males in particular whom are culturally considered privileged by being white males, but the privilege is not actually trickling down to them. And in some ways, the ways in which they are unprivileged, sort of class uh, hindrances they have, are not being watched out for in the ways that to some degree they are for other groups in, in society. And that's leading at this point to a lot of resentment. How salient it is in American politics, we can argue, but but it is an interesting way of thinking about some of the white identity politics backlash we're seeing right now. I think we're good. Fantastic. It's a great episode of The Weeds. So weedsy. So weedsy. Um, Thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, thanks thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Afim Shapiro. The Weeds is a product of Vox and Panoply. We'll see you next week. It's only a product of those two things. We'll see you next week. (laughs) It's going to be great. So I'm going to make a quick plug here myself. Uh, so I have this other podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, which I talk about sometimes on here. I'm going to mention here when there's a relevant guest. This week, my guest is Arlie Hochschild. She is an amazing sociologist who in the 90s and aughts really revolutionized our understanding of gender equity in the workplace, of how parents manage time. Uh, she just does amazing work. But over the past five years, she's been embedded with Tea Party Republicans in conservative Louisiana. And we have a long talk this week about the empathy gap, about how American politics feels to the sort of people who are supporting Trump right now. It is a very fascinating way of thinking about politics. It's unweedsy in the sense that it is about understanding people's subjective experience of the country, not their objective experience of policy. I think it'll be of a lot of interest to this crew. And if you are interested, you should check it out at The Ezra Klein Show, wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.